Amen. Thank you, guys. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 this evening. We are going through the um, book of Hebrews verse by verse. And um, um, Paul, I believe Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews. There's, uh, there's a lot of reasons to think so. There are, there are a few objections, and uh, if um, uh, we may cover those as, uh, as we get to some of these different points. But uh, um, one of the things that, uh, that makes it different for, um, uh, for the book of Hebrews, especially this part of the book of Hebrews, is that uh, Paul says that there are some things that he's going to write to the, to the Jews uh, and Jewish Christians, obviously, that are hard to understand. And the reason they were hard to understand for them is because, and he tells us this, he takes a little sidetrack in chapter 6 about their spiritual uh, maturity level, literally the fact that they have gone back to being baby Christians. They, uh, they did know the Word, they did know certain truths of the Word, but they have gone back and begun to relay foundations and go back to the, to the um, feeling guilty and condem- condemned and, and different things like that because of sins before their past and gone back to the law of Moses trying to fix those things and, and, and it's left them in a, in a spiritual mess. And as a result, it's hard for us to understand some of these things too because we don't have the Jewish background or the background of the temple sacrifices and the rituals and, and all those things. And so some of it, whereas it applies to them because the temple worship is still going on, is really tedious for us. And so I, I apologize for that. Um, but Paul gets into some of the, the, the very details of things that, that might not make sense to us unless we really take time to, to figure it out. And, and to be perfectly frank with you, if you're not really hungry for God, some of this doesn't, either doesn't make sense or you don't care. And that's what he was saying to them. That's why it was hard, because they were dull of hearing. They didn't care about the things of God. They just wanted to stick to what they knew. Now, one of the, let me show you one of the, uh, the differences or refer to it. You don't have to turn. But, for example, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Okay, well, to the Jew, or to, I'm sorry, to the Gentiles, he writes that Jesus made an offering to God for us. Fine. That pretty much covers the important point. Jesus was a sacrifice. Jesus made an offering for us. But to the Jews, he goes into detail. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, he tells us the only person that can make a sacrifice for a man to God is a high priest. Well, the Jews know that. The Gentiles don't know that. Paul doesn't stop and try to explain to the Gentiles that Jesus was our high priest. He spends that time talking to the Jews because they understand something about a high priest. What would the Ephesian church, the Gentile church in Ephesus, know about a high priest? The only thing they had in town that we know of is the temple to Diana, the goddess. They might know what the high high priest to Diana would do, but what are they going to know about the Jewish high priest or the priesthood system? And so for that reason, because we're Gentiles, because we don't have that same background, some of this gets kind of tedious. But in chapter 8, Paul is going to sum things up. He started in chapter 4, verse 14, and identifying that Jesus is our high priest. And everything since then, he's been proving the point in different ways, from different angles, but he's been proving the point that Jesus is our high priest. Chapter 7, he identifies and makes an argument and proves the case that Jesus was our, is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, the order of Melchizedek was an eternal order. Melchizedek was not of the tribe of Levi. He was a contemporary of Abraham. He was not of Abraham's seed. He couldn't have been of the Aaronic uh, priesthood, Aaron, who was the forerunner of the Levites, who were the uh, priestly tribe. And so it was important to identify that Jesus, from Scripture, was pointed out in Psalm 110, was uh, spoken by God to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of the Levites. Now that's important because... Melchizedek was a king and a priest. The tribe of Levi could not be the king tribe. The king, the king or the governing tribe of, of Israel was the tribe of Judah. That was the lineage of David. So a Levite couldn't be a king, but Melchizedek was both. And he's showing that Jesus, who was born of the tribe of Judah, fulfilled the requirement of being both king and priest. You remember when Jesus was crucified... Uh, one of the claims that the, that the uh, Pharisees made, it, the, the Sanhedrin literally, uh, made against Jesus was that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And they said, we don't have any king but Caesar. And so the Romans are bound. They've made the argument, you, the Romans, are bound 
to crucify this guy, do away with him because he's claimed to be a king. So when they crucified Jesus, they put a plaque on top of the thing, a sign on top of the thing that says the king of the Jews. Well, the, the Sanhedrin didn't want that. The Pharisees didn't want any part of that. They said, you need to take that down. They said, no, we wrote it. That was your argument. He's going to stay. Folks, that was significant. Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, was the king of the Jews. He died not only as the king, but also as the sacrifice. Now, he goes on and makes the point in, in uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up that later. Let's just start in chapter 8. He's going to sum things up. Now, I'm going to read through the first six verses. Most of the, um, I think there's 13 verses in chapter 8. Most of the meat of chapter 8 is in the first six verses. The, the majority of the remaining verses, five of them, I think, five of the six or seven that are left, is a, um, a, an Old Testament quote. It's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. And, and it'll fall in place pretty quickly. So we're going to use most of our time this, uh, this evening covering the information in the first six verses, and then the last will go pretty quick. So Paul is now saying, here's the summing up of everything that we've, that we've made the point about. Now, the summing up he's talking about is his argument that began in chapter 4, verse 14, about Jesus being the high priest. This does not sum up everything he started in in chapter 1. It sums up the high priest ministry and Jesus being our high priest, which started in chapter 4 and verse 14. So all the way through chapter 4 and verse uh, 14, through the end of chapter 7, verse 28, he's saying, let's sum this up. Let's back up and summarize what we've said. Now, of the things, verse 1, Chapter 8, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a high priest, or should not be a priest, excuse me seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises." Now let's stop and go back through these verse by verse and show you what he's saying. Notice the first thing he says in verse 1. He says, here's the summing up. Point number one, we have such an high priest. Notice the word such. He's speaking about something specific about Jesus, and he's summing up everything that he's identified about Jesus being our high priest. He's being a king and a priest. This refers back to chapter 7 in verse 26. Because notice in chapter 7, verse 26, as he's concluding his argument, making his case about Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of the Levites, notice what it says. It says, for such an high priest became to us or became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests, the Levites, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he, did, Jesus, did once when he offered up himself. Now what's he saying? He concludes chapter 7 by saying Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek because he was king and priest. Now he says Jesus was not only king and priest, he was priest and sacrificed both. And the reason he was the priest and sacrificed both is because he was the high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice. Now, folks, here's a real important point. It's tedious, and it might seem like a sideline to the Gentiles, but it's a real important point. Doctrinally, it's a real important point to the Gentiles. Jesus did not become a high priest when he went into heaven. He was a high priest here on the earth. Well, Pastor Mike, if he was a high priest here on the earth, how is that possible? Number one, he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. Turn back with me to chapter 7. Look at verse 12. This is the point that Paul was making. Here's part of his argument. He said, For the priesthood being changed, therefore is made of necessity a change also of the law. In other words, he's saying there was a transfer. Through Jesus, there was a transfer. There was a transfer of the Levitical priesthood to the order of Melchizedek priesthood. There was a transfer of the law of the Old Covenant 
to this better covenant that he's going to identify in chapter 8 and verse 6. He's saying there was a, a change or a transfer. Now, there was an overlap because when Jesus was here on the earth, the Old Testament covenant or the old covenant, the law, had not yet been fulfilled and wasn't fulfilled until Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and said it is finished and gave up the ghost, what was finished? Redemption wasn't finished. The Bible makes very clear that Jesus died, went to hell for three days, and then was raised from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, that's when he offered his blood in the heavenly holy of holies. And that's when redemption was accomplished. So redemption wasn't finished. Well, what was finished? Some people say the old covenant was finished. The old covenant wasn't finished. Because there is never a possibility for a time for there not to be a covenant. And the new covenant wasn't established until Jesus offered his blood in heaven. If there was ever a possibility, one moment, one second, for there not to be a covenant in place from the time that God made the covenant with Adam, then God was a covenant breaker. There would have been a time, even if it was just for three days, there would have been somebody that would have needed the blessing of God in those three days when Jesus was buried. What would they have done? The old covenant couldn't have been finished. What was finished? What was finished was the law. The law was finished. Now, the law, we mean by the law, and the Jews mean by the law, the law of Moses. The law of Moses was just the codification. It was the, the outline. It was the, uh, uh, the, the rules and the rituals. It was the manual for the covenant relationship that God had made with man through Adam. It was not a covenant in and of itself. It was just the details, the handbook for how Adam's covenant would be fulfilled in the earth. It was nothing in and of itself. It was just the rules whereby you could walk in the blessings of Abraham. But it revealed to everybody that you couldn't do it yourself. So Jesus was not only king and priest, he was priest and sacrifice. He did it all. Back to chapter 8. Well, uh, I made, uh, let me prove the point. Paul has already made these comments. They know, they've read it. We read it too, but we overlook it. I made the statement that Jesus didn't become a high priest or didn't become a priest when he went to heaven. He was a priest here on the earth. Let me prove that to you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Notice it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him, Jesus, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. When was he made a merciful and faithful high priest? When he was made like unto man. Not when he went to heaven, when he was born into the earth. In things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Only the priest could make reconciliation. This word reconciliation is the word propitiation. I think I told you this when we were here. It's the word propitiation. It means literally the mercy seat. It means the sacrifice. In other words, Jesus was made a man so that he could make reconciliation or propitiation for the people. He was made a man so that he could offer his own blood as a sacrifice. Everybody agrees to that. Everybody knows that, right? It doesn't say that he went to heaven in order to become the high priest so that he could make reconciliation. Only the priest could make reconciliation for the people. So if he wasn't already a priest, then his blood, even though it was the, offer, the offering itself and the sacrifice, he still needs somebody else to make the offering to God. He needs somebody else to be the go-between to offer the perfect sacrifice to God so that it's finished. Jesus had to be the high priest here on the earth. Well, why didn't he act as the high priest? Because his job was not to fulfill the Levite priesthood. His job was to fulfill the Melchizedek priesthood. Look to chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Notice Paul does not say we got a high priest when he went into the heaven. It says we have a high priest and that high priest passed into the heavens. He was a high priest before he ever went to heaven. Can you see it? Paul's been saying it all along, but to us it doesn't make sense. To us it makes no difference because we don't know how the priesthood works. We didn't have to go to the priest and making sacrifices. We didn't have to, to watch the, the, the Day of Atonement and the blood being spilled and all that stuff. It doesn't make sense to us as Gentiles, but that's where Paul is getting into the nitty-gritty, and he knows the people that are reading it have this ingrained in them. And please understand, the Jews' life revolved around the temple. You get away from the temple, you got no place with God whatsoever. 
because it was, it was a continuous offering of sacrifices. It was a continuous offering of some kind of offering or, or, or I say sacrifices. I'm not just talking about blood sacrifice. That's not the only thing that they were required. They were required to bring meal offerings. They were required to bring sheaf offerings and different things like that from the harvest. In other words, God kept them coming continually. And that's a good practice today. Not only a good practice from the standpoint of prayer and reading your Bible daily, being with God daily, but also being in church all the time. Because it keeps you mindful of your place with God. That's why he kept these things going all the time. So it says, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That's why we know that Jesus was a high priest here on the earth, and he also became the sacrifice. Back to verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. The high priest that he's talking about is those seven characteristics over in chapter 7 and verse 26. Here's the difference between Jesus and the Levites, or the high priest of the day. Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. None of those qualifications fit the Levites or the high priest. This is talking about Jesus not in heaven, Jesus on the earth. When Jesus came in contact with sin, he was holy. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. Even those three, no high priest could ever fulfill. Now he's he's still building a case. So keep these things in mind. This is why he's saying, this is why the theme of the book of Hebrews is, Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. Jesus is our high priest, is better than the earthly high priest. We have such a high priest. Now, notice he focuses on we, we meaning the Christians. What does that mean? That means the Jews don't have a high priest anymore. There's still a guy in office, but they didn't have one because the covenant had been transferred. The covenant is not based on the Old Testament law anymore. The covenant is not based on the law of Moses anymore. They don't have a covenant, and that's what he's saying. We have a high priest. The Jews don't, and the unsaved don't. We have a high priest. We have such a high priest. This high priest that qualifies, that becomes us because he became what we could not be. He lived a life that we could not on our own live. And, and certainly the people trying to keep the law know that they couldn't do it. That's part of our high priest or Jesus high priest ministry that we have access to. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heavens. Now let me, um, I don't want to take long with this, but let me make a point about this. One of the biggest objections, maybe the biggest objection, that some people have, some scholars have, to, uh, uh, to the idea that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, is that in all of, other, all of Paul's other letters to the Gentiles, he speaks constantly about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's never mentioned in the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. Resurrection of Jesus is never mentioned. But on the other hand, what is emphasized seven different times Seven different scriptures throughout the book is the ascension of Jesus seated on the right hand of God. Well, for me, those are the one and the same. He can't be ascended unless he was resurrected. But he doesn't talk about the resurrection from the, uh, to, uh, when he's speaking to the, uh, to the Hebrews. He talks about the fact that he's seated on the right hand of God. Why? Because resurrection wasn't an important issue for the Jews. You remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees were divided on the subject of resurrection. The Sadducees were just as strict as the Pharisees were, and they said there's no such thing as a resurrection. So it's being a good Jew, or the doctrine of Judaism, certainly wasn't dependent on resurrection then, was it? Couldn't have been. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have condemned the Sadducees as heretics and said they had no part in, in Judaism. But they didn't. They just said, you guys are wrong about that. Who knows what else you're wrong about, too? So, G- so Paul focuses on the ascension of Jesus and his seating at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Jesus, still talking about Jesus, is a minister of the sanctuary. And what sanctuary is he talking about? He's not talking about the one here on the earth. And of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now the tabernacle he's talking about refers not only to the tabernacle of the wilderness, because that's where the high priest ministry began, with Aaron, who was the forerunner of the Levites. But he's also talking about the temple. And that temple is still going. Somebody said that, uh, somebody used the example, and I think it's a good one. It's uh, the time that Paul wrote to the, to, the, uh, to the Jews, to the Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews. It was like there was a transition period that was going on. Someone referred to it this way, the sun had come up, but the moon was still out. <laughs> 
You know how it's like that sometimes in the morning. Well, we don't look at the moon and say, oh, well, gee, it must going to be night again. No, we recognize that even though the moon is visible, it's daylight. It's sunshine. That's what this is like. Because Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of God. He is our high priest, but the temple is still in effect. In the sense that it's still visible, the high priest is still operating, the priesthood is still doing the same things they did before Jesus was crucified, and it's just a very few short years, probably less than five years, from the time that Paul writes this to where everything is destroyed and there is no more temple. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more anything. 70 AD comes along. The Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and that's the end of it to this day. So that's what's going on here. And it's, it's while the, the moon is still visible, that's when the Jews and mostly the Levites are trying to pull the Christians back in and keep them operating according to the temple. And Paul is saying, no, there's been a transfer. There's been a transfer of the law. There's been a transfer of the, of the priesthood. And that's what he's trying to get them to see. So he says, we have such a high priest. This high priest is a minister of the sanctuary, not the temple, but the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now, what's the true tabernacle? Look at chapter 9. Verse 11, it says, But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Please get that. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. He doesn't refer to a temple because that would uh, symbolize or, or uh, have the connotation of a building. He's not talking about a building that's made with hands. He said, but a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the bloods of, bulls, of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained the eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls, bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works and to serve the living God. What's he saying? He's saying the tabernacle is Jesus' body. Chapter 10 and verse 5 speaks of an Old Testament quote, and it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, meaning when he was born as a man, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So the true tabernacle he's talking about is the body of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. He's still building the case. He's going to make the point. We're taking it apart. They don't have to. They understand these things. They understand when he uses some of these words, some of these terminology, some of this ter terminology. They recognize that he's talking about something that has meaning to them so they can go right on to the next point. Notice verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, Jesus, have somewhat also to offer. Notice he calls him the high priest, but he calls him a man. He says, even though Jesus was passed into the heavens, he went as a man. And as a man, he had to have something to offer. We've proven that he's the high priest, but we also proved that he was a sacrifice. So when Jesus went into the heavens, he went in with something to offer or else he can't go in. What did he go in with? His blood was his right to enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Now, uh, where are we? Do we want to jump there? Yeah, let's keep going. Verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Now, this is not talking about when Jesus was on the earth. This is Paul saying if he had stayed or remained on the earth. See, the objection the Jews are going to have is, well, the temple's still go going. And if Jesus was here, why didn't the temple was just, why wouldn't the temple destroyed? Or why wasn't the priesthood done away with? Why didn't Jesus come back to the earth and say, okay, now here's how things are going to be? Why are we left with just your revelation, Paul, to explain this all to us? He's saying very simply that if Jesus had stayed on the earth, how many of us would have liked that? Sounds good, doesn't it? Not good. He said if he had stayed on the earth, he couldn't have been a priest because the earthly priests were the Levites. We would have been stuck with the Levites as our high priest if Jesus had stayed on the earth. In other words, Jesus had the right to enter into the, the presence of God, the Holy of Holies in heaven, because of his blood. But it's only in heaven that Jesus can be our eternal and merciful high priest, not here on the earth. That's why we're better off that he went away. You remember he said that. He told his disciples in John chapter 14, he said, it's better for you that I go away. 
Can you imagine what they would have thought sitting there at the table listening to that? You've got to be kidding. It's better for us than you go away? Let's see. You've been raising the dead. You've been healing the sick. You've been multiplying loaves and fishes. You've been walking through crowds that tried to kill you. And we're better off because you leave? We think like that when we look at it from a natural standpoint. Jesus is saying, yeah, it's a lot better for you that I go away. Why? Because I can't be your high priest if I don't go away. I'm not a high priest here on the earth. I came to the earth and operated as a high priest because God made me one so that I could make the eternal sacrifice. But if I come back and stay on the earth, I'm no longer the high priest for you. This is not my sanctuary. Heaven is my home. Guess what? It's yours too. So he said if he had stayed on the earth, he couldn't have remained a high priest. Seeing that there are priests, Levites, that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, notice what Paul is saying. He's saying Christians don't have a high priest on earth. Folks, that's a real important point. As a Christian, you don't have a high priest here on the earth. You got one in heaven. You have access to one in heaven by faith just simply calling on his name, but you do not have one here on the earth. That means you don't have to, and in fact, you are forbidden to go to or through anyone else here on the earth, any human being here on the earth, to get to God. We're not used to high priests. We're Gentiles. I didn't grow up in a church that had a high priest. Did you? We've got people that we call priests here on the earth, but, you know. Unfortunately, some of them are no more for their sins than anything else. So to the Gentiles, that doesn't mean anything. To the Jews, it means everything. Think about the high priest that's sitting in his exalted seat hearing this letter read. What do you mean they don't have a high priest? Who am I? Paul's basically saying, nobody. You have the opportunity to get saved just like everybody else does. Because there is no high priest. Folks, there is nobody over you in any spiritual thing here on the earth. Now, that's good and bad. It's good from the standpoint that you have free access to God. It's bad because some people take that and think they've got everything they ever need and they don't need the ministry gifts that God set in the church. Well, we're all ministers. Okay. No argument there. But it doesn't negate the fact that God said in the church, ministry gifts. Why? To teach, to train, to equip people in the things of God so that they can be effective ministers in the body of Christ. Not having a high priest does not mean there's a disorder in the, among the people of God. That's not the way God intended it. That's what some people are going to hear. So what does Jesus do? Does he come back and say, well, forget that no high priest stuff. I'm clamping down. No. He lets people find out on their own. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 5. Still talking about the Levites who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, this is what God spoke in the Old Testament to Moses. He said, see that thou makest all things according to the pattern showed unto thee in the mount. Now, what was the pattern? Well, the pattern is the tabernacle and the priesthood and the garments and the ritual sacrifices and the meal offerings and the wave offerings and all the other kind of stuff. That was the pattern. Well, what was it a pattern of? Or rather, what was the pattern that Moses followed to establish all these things for the high priest and the priesthood and the tabernacle worship and all that other kind of stuff? What was the pattern? Folks, everything about the temple, everything about the tabernacle, everything about the priesthood points to Jesus. Not something in heaven. Not some build a building that looks like a building in heaven. Jesus himself, Jesus' body is the temple, the tabernacle. That's why Paul speaks to the Gentiles about, don't you know? that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Here's why you should live right. Here's why you should operate according to the law of God, which is the law of love. And that is because your, temp your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You have been made the temple of the Holy Ghost, just like Jesus was the temple of the Holy Ghost here on the earth. Jesus was the pattern 
Jesus' life, Jesus' service, Jesus' operation, Jesus' revelation of the Father, everything that Jesus did here on the earth was the pattern by which the whole of the priesthood, the whole of the temple worship, the whole of everything regarding the temple and the high priest and the lower, lesser priest as well was built on. Jesus fulfilled every part of it. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, now, since the old covenant priesthood was just the pattern of that which is new, he's already established what is new, and that is Jesus, who is at the, high, the, the right hand of God the Father, as our high priest. There are certain things that as a, that as a pastor, um, well, let me tell you how the law recognizes things. The law recognizes ordination of ministers based on a certain number of what's called sacerdotal sacerdotal functions. I know it's a real great word. I just love that word. The Catholic Church has identified nine separate sacerdotal functions for a priest or for a minister. And the government recognizes these. I don't know if I even know all of them. Uh, Baptisms, weddings, funerals, uh, baby dedications, uh, teaching in the church, spiritual counseling, the administration of church affairs, and... um, There's some others. Uh, well, uh, did I mention worship services, conducting worship services? There's supposed to be nine of these things that the government recognizes, and they say if a person doesn't fulfill all those, then they can't be ordained as a minister and, and take whatever benefits uh, are available as far as the laws are concerned and this, that, and the other. Jesus is a high priest, not because he was born as a high priest, born into the priesthood. Jesus is a high priest because of his sacerdotal function. What is his sacerdotal function? He offered his blood in the heavenly holy of holies. Now, what is the heavenly holy of holies? If Jesus is the pattern that the temple and the tabernacle was built on, what is the heavenly holy of holies? The holy of holies was always the place where the presence of God is. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is the holy of holies. It's the presence of God. In heaven, there's not some temple. There's not some sacrifice that's being made. There's not some place that if there was a temple, then Jesus would have to sit there instead of at the right hand of God. No, Jesus is the pattern for the temple. In heaven, the holy of holies is the holy place where God is. That's where Jesus is seated at his right hand. Here's why this is all important. Here's why Paul has been making the case. Verse 6, but now, things have changed now. On the earth, there was a pattern that they had to follow and there were ritual sacrifices and and procedures and all kinds of things, ceremonial washings, all kinds of stuff that the high priest and the lesser priest had to endure and go through and and do on behalf of the people. But now, it's different now. That means everything that they're still doing with the temple and the temple worship is for nothing. Everything that these Jewish Christians have been pulled back into by the Levites, by the priests, is for nothing. That's what he's saying. But now has he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant. Now, why has he got a better ministry? Well, the most obvious thing is the priests here on the earth were temporary. They operated for a short period of time, and the priesthood passed from one to the other. They were rotating out. Very few of them lasted more than five years in the office of high priest. We know that from the time that Jesus was crucified and, uh, and Paul came on the scene, there, were different, uh, there was a different high priest in office. The high priest that gave Paul his letters to go persecute the church was a different high priest than the one that crucified Jesus. So there was a consistent turnover, pretty regular turnover. And as a result, the temporary priest could not match up to an eternal high priest. So at the very least, Jesus has a more excellent ministry because he's there forever. But now remember what Paul's already identified. Jesus was king, priest, and sacrifice. Who's going to match up with that? He said in verse 26 of chapter 7 that Jesus, in his dealings with and confrontation with sin, was holy, undefiled, blameless, separate from sinners, and passed into the heavens. Show me somebody here on earth that could be that. It's impossible. That's why he's been building the case point by point by point, detail by detail by detail. When he gets to now Jesus is a better ministry, a more excellent ministry, who's going to argue? The only thing they could say is, well, no, Jesus didn't do those things. Well, we've got proof that he did. 
he's been building the case. He's been wrapping them up tight just like a package. So he said, now he has a more excellent ministry. By how much also, please notice this phrase, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant. What's a mediator? If something goes to mediation, if there's a dispute and something goes to mediation, who's the mediator? He's the one that hears both sides and brings, to, brings them both to an agreement, right? So a mediator is a man in the middle. Notice it says Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. He's a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. Let me, let me make a couple of points here and then I'll, I'll cover the, the, the whole of the subject that I want to get to. It does not say created. It says established. There was not a new covenant created. Folks, if God changed the covenant that he first made with Adam, then he lied because he said it would be an everlasting covenant. If he changed the covenant that God made with Abraham, if God changed the covenant that he made with Abraham to make a new one, even if the new one's better, he lied. He said it was an everlasting covenant. It said it would be to Abraham and his seed forever. We know from Galatians 3, Paul goes into great detail telling us that Abraham's seed was Jesus and whoever believes on him, not just natural Israel. So there can't be a new covenant, meaning the old one was done away with. There can't be a replacement covenant. Well, how can it be new then? It's new because of the nature of it. It's new because of the promises that the new one is established on. Now think about this. We've talked about this some, so I hope we don't have to go into too much detail to catch people up. Genesis chapter 15 tells us God made a covenant with Abraham. You remember the story? Abraham asked, how do I know this land will belong to me? You promised me children and all that kind of stuff, but I don't have any. He showed him the stars. He said, your seed will be as the stars of the sky and so forth. He said, this land is yours, and he gives him boundaries of the land. He said, how do I know it's going to be mine? Other people are living there, stronger people than me. How do I know? So God causes him to fall into deep sleep. Before he does, he commands him to take animals and split these animals in half. In other words, he says, do your part to make the covenant ritual, put the covenant ritual in place. And so he does. Splits these animals in half, lays them aside, and blood's all in the middle and that kind of stuff. But Abraham is not the one that walks through there. If it was a covenant with two people between two human beings, both parties would walk through the thing from, from one side to the other and back, and the other goes from the opposite end and then back, showing that we're both walking through the same blood, we're both walking through the same animal sacrifices. This is this important. If either one of us breaks it, the blood of this covenant is on our heads and it's a curse unto us and our children forever. That's the whole purpose of, of blood covenants and sacrifices and so forth. But Abraham's not the one that walks through it. You remember a deep sleep falls upon Abraham. And it says a smoking flax and a burning torch walks through. It's, a, it's identified. King James English is kind of tough. But those are very difficult words to, to translate anyway. Smoking flax literally means a glistening vapor. What does that mean? Well, that sounds like the glory of God to fill the temple, doesn't it? Burning torch means just simply a flame of fire. Well, the Bible talks about Jesus being a flame of fire. So what is it? It's the glory of God and the flame of fire. You could make the argument that it's both the glory of God and the flame of fire represent Jesus walking back and forth twice to represent God and Jesus, or you could represent, or you could make the argument that God walks through as the glory and Jesus walks through as the torch. Doesn't matter to me. Either way, it means this. It means God's one party, Abraham's the other party, and Jesus is the mediator. Jesus was the mediator of a covenant between Abraham and God. The problem with Jesus being the mediator of Abraham's covenant was that he was not of both natures. He could only really represent God's side of things because Jesus was spirit. He was not flesh and blood. But when Jesus comes to the earth as king, priest, and sacrifice and then enters the heavenly holy of holies. He enters into the presence of God with his own body as the sacrifice. Now he's a mediator that is of both natures, both God and man. So that makes him a better mediator because now it's a better covenant. 
He's a mediator of a better covenant because now he has both natures. Now he just doesn't represent God. Now he represents God and man. He represents both sides. So what he's done is from the time of Genesis 15 until his resurrection, Jesus has been operating as an agent in an old covenant that was based solely on material things. Turn with me to Psalm 133. Let me show you something. Psalm 133. Is this making any sense? Okay. I hope so. I got a couple of yes. We'll see. Psalm 133. Let me show you the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is going to be real, real important. It's important for the Jews. It's important for us. Psalm 133. Let's look at verse, uh, well, what do we want to do? Let's read all three verses of it. Verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down from the skirts to the skirts of his garment. Notice it's talking about the high priest. Aaron's the high priest. Here's where he was anointed with oil to become the high priest. It's the type of the Holy Ghost coming on man. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descends upon the mountain of Zion. Now, Zion's the type of the church. Zion's always a reference to the church. The seed of Abraham meaning those that belong to Jesus. For what, for there, there, Mount Zion, the church, and that representative of the church, which was Abraham before Jesus was raised from the dead, came to the earth and was raised from the dead. Here's a picture of the old covenant. For there, old covenant priesthood and so forth, for there the Lord commanded blessing, even life forevermore. Notice what it says. In the original Hebrew, it says this. The Lord commanded the blessing and life forevermore. So what's the point? The point is, the material things were the emphasis of the Old Covenant, and there was eternal life to come. The Old Covenant was based on a certain number of things. Length of days, increase of numbers, seed time and harvest, national privileges for the nation, extraordinary peace, abundance and prosperity, and oh yeah, there's eternal life to come someday. That was the Old Covenant. That was Abraham's covenant. That was the only thing that Jesus could mediate on behalf of Abraham, on behalf of the Jews, until Jesus came to the earth. Now Jesus comes to the earth. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. He's raised from the dead, enters into the presence of God. Let me show you what the new covenant is. First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It says, for bodily exercise profits little. It, it doesn't really say it profits little. It, it literally means it profits for a little while. There is some profit to it. It's just for a little while. It's just temporary. For bodily exercise profits for a little while, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So what's the new covenant? The new covenant is all about spiritual blessings. The new covenant is all about righteousness. It's about redemption. It's being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's getting your eyes and your attention on heaven because that's our eternal home. But what about now? What about now is we have spiritual blessings that encompass all of the old covenant blessings, but it's based on eternal life. That's why it's a better covenant established upon better promises. The problem with the old covenant is that it couldn't make anybody perfect. No matter how good you did, no matter how many sacrifices you made, no matter how often you went, no matter what you did, it couldn't make things right. It couldn't purge your conscience of the things that you did wrong. The blood of uh, the blood of the bulls and the goats and the sacrifice, it gave you a free pass with God for a year. But it couldn't do anything about the things that you knew that you did wrong. Couldn't purge your conscience. Couldn't make you right. Couldn't make you new in any way whatsoever. It couldn't perfect anything. What was the problem with it? Was God the problem? No, the problem was there was no mediator that could, that could relate to or represent both sides. And so the only thing God could do is say, okay, here's the representative representation from my side. Here's the law. What did the law do? Did the law make them right before God? Nope. The law showed them that they couldn't be right before God. So what is man doing? He's going through the rituals. He's going through the sacrifices. He's going through the temple worship. Left, walking out after doing everything he's supposed to do, walking out saying, well, I did what I was supposed to do, but I don't feel any different than the way I went in. I'm still not right before God, and I know it. Jesus changed every bit of that. Verse 7. 
For if that first covenant, meaning the law, had been faultless, then no place, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, beginning in verse 8, down through the end of verse 11, or verse 12, rather, is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He's going to quote word for word. For finding fault in them. Now, again, what's the problem? Is Abraham the problem? Nope. Is God the problem? Nope. What's the problem? The problem is man doesn't have a representative that can undo his wrong, that can bring him into God's class of being. He's got a representative that can command blessings upon him, and they're living under blessings when they obeyed the law. But that's all they could have. But here's what God had promised under that old covenant law. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice that. Israel refers to the priest, Judah refers to the king. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Moses' law. He's not talking about Abraham. He's not saying I'm going to redo my Abrahamic covenant. He's saying I'm redoing that which was instituted through Moses. The law. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, saying, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what he's tied up. Jesus was king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was priest and sacrifice on your behalf. Everything about the temple, everything about the tabernacle was the pattern of Jesus himself. That's why his human body, that's why the virgin birth was so important. Because without the the, the absence of sin, he couldn't be the pattern of that the tabernacle and the temple was built upon. But his body was the tabernacle. And so as priests here on the earth, he operated according to the priestly characteristics that are referred to in chapter 7 and verse 26, holy, undefiled, blameless, separate from sinners, and, and passed into the heavens. While he was here on the earth, he stayed separate from sin even though he came in contact with sin. No priest could ever do that before. As a result, he passed into the heavens as priest with the sacrifice which was his own body and his own blood. That sacrifice was accepted, and therefore he sat down at the right hand of God. Therefore he became a a mediator of a better covenant. Why was it a better covenant? Because now it's established on better promises. You've got man, Abraham, and God represented in one, and that's Jesus. Jesus the man, Christ God. So now, the nature of the covenant has changed. The nature of the covenant is Righteousness, the new birth, redemption is now available to mankind. Therefore, there's no laws to keep that were given to Moses. There's one law, and that's the law of love, which is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost when you're born again. That's why you don't need to go through somebody else to know God. You can know Him directly because His nature's in you. That's the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, I'll write my laws in their heart. How? By making them new creatures in Christ Jesus. I'll remember their sins and their iniquities no more. Now something has perfected mankind. Now there is intended to be no condemnation because your sins have been forgiven. That's what these people keep tripping up on. That's why they keep going back because every time they try to keep the law, they still mess up. God didn't get, God didn't save you for the intent of you keeping the law of Moses. So he wraps it up. Verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. In other words, the only reason that there's a difference between an old covenant and a new covenant, the only reason there is an old covenant and a new covenant, is because the new covenant has better promises that it's established on, and those better promises are wrapped up in Jesus. He can now both represent God and man, because he came to the earth as a man, offered his blood, and went to heaven. 
So he says, those of you that are trying to operate still under the old covenant doesn't even exist anymore. But it didn't stop existing until Jesus made the new covenant available to us. In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Paul tells him. He tells him about the destruction of the temple. Now does he know that's what he's telling him? I don't know. But it's less than five years before the whole thing is done away with. That's why the illustration of the sun has come up, but the moon is still evident or still visible. That's why that's so important, because they've got both. And the Jews of the temple, the priesthood, is trying to say, well, we're still here. We're still operational. God never did anything to do away with us. We've got to still be in in play here. So Jesus, okay, Jesus, if you want to, but you can't get away from the temple. Paul is saying it's already done away with. And pretty soon, it'll be done away with physically. Can you see it? Folks, it really means something that we have a great high priest passed into the heavens. It really means something that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. It really means something. We may not recognize that because we don't have the background of the Jews. But that's, I believe, why God saved the book of Hebrews for us, so that we could understand some of these things, so that we could see that down to the last little detail, Jesus fulfilled everything that there was for Jew and Gentile alike. Is it necessary that you know all this stuff? No, it's not necessary to get saved. But the more of this stuff I learn, the more it makes me appreciate who saved me. And that has great value to me. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were our priest here on the earth, even though people didn't recognize it. You were our king, the king of the people of of God under the old covenant, but you were just as much our king too. You were certainly our sacrifice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you did. Thank you for fulfilling the plan of God And that now you have a more excellent ministry as a mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. We have every one of the Old Testament promises, every one of the temporal promises of the Old Covenant, but they're based in spiritual blessings. Thank you, Father. For opening our eyes to see who we are in Christ and all that he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with us. You're dismissed.